Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to the Living World. Last episode this semester. I apologize for being 12 minutes late. Um, there were a few technical issues because the interview I recorded needs to be uploaded uh, via USB onto the computer before I can broadcast. And there wasn't a mouse, so I'll have to be, I'll be broadcasting the interview from my laptop. So I apologize if the sound quality is not the best. Um, but I should have time to cover the whole interview and uh, this week's topic. So it's not really like a topic per se, but I was able to get an interview with the head for the School of Biology here at uh, the university, uh, Dr. Frank Gunmore. Super nice guy. I just chatted with him earlier today, and I hope you guys all enjoy my interview with him. He was just elected to the Royal Society of Edinburgh. If any of you read the weekly uh, St. Andrew's newsletter, In the Loop, there was a mention in there. So if you're curious, go ahead and check it out. But uh, yes, if you, since you are listening to the show, even if I'm a bit late, um, I hope you guys enjoy the interview where I talk with Frank about uh, the Royal Society and the work that he does in his lab along with some of the work that he does as the head of school. So I hope you all enjoy the interview. And then once it's over, I'll go into a bit more of the specifics because it doesn't quite cover the whole hour. It's about half an hour. So hope you guys enjoy. And I will be back with you all soon. Okay. Um, I guess I'll start first with your induction into the um, Royal Society. So I actually, I'm not a UK citizen, and I've never heard of the Royal Society of Edinburgh before. So I was wondering if you could just elaborate once again. Well, that led to my first publication. Sorry, technical glitch there. Let me restart. <laughs> okay. Um, I guess I'll start first with your induction into the um, Royal Society. So I actually, I'm not a UK citizen, and I've never heard of the Royal Society of Edinburgh before. So I was wondering if you could just elaborate what that is. Okay, so um, there are various organizations within the UK which you can get recognition. And there are some that are very much subjects uh, specific. So I'm also a fellow of the Royal Society of Biology, which is biology. And you won't be surprised to find out there's also one you chemistry and one in physics. I don't have that. I have the biology. But in the case of this uh, fellow of the Royal Society of Edinburgh, in one sense, this is a more general aspect because it's not discipline specific. It's like they cover everything from all of the different sciences, but also the arts and humanities as well. And other people who are given FRSE also sometimes have done like a big business for Scotland as well. So it's very much based for things that people have done in uh, Scotland. There is an equivalent down south, which is called the Royal Society. And that's even older than the Edinburgh. I can't remember off the top of my head when the Edinburgh one started. But the um, one down south, which is like UK-wide type things, you know, that one, you can you have people who are on the books like uh, Isaac Newton, etc. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> is that so, based um, in London? Yeah, that's based in London. Gotcha. If I remember, actually, it was set up by Charles II. So, oh. uh, yeah, so yeah, very old. But the Edinburgh one, I think, is still something like maybe two, three hundred years old or something like that. But you can check that out. Mm -hmm. 
And the way this works is that, you know, um, when you are awarded this, you're deemed to have made a significant difference for Scotland in some way. And in particular, it's, as I say, across all the boards, not just sciences, can be the arts, etc., the humanities. And um, it's, it is a great honour, because, I mean, in one sense, it's probably the highest honour you can be given in Scotland. You're right? Uh, in the... It's not, it's not something from the, the royal family or anything like that, but it, it's from your peers, if you know what I mean. So other people have judged your sort of like, uh, applications and your worth and that side of things, and they believe that you have done something significant. So that, that in itself, I always like to, you know, when you look at uh, our principal, she always writes, you know, Professor Dame Sally Mapstone, FRSE. She, she's immensely proud of that. I guess also... It's the fact that um, I was, you know, I'm actually born English, you can see what I mean, but to be recognised by my adopted country is always quite a nice aspect. So that's in a nutshell what it is. And what it gets you is um, the ability to, the Royal Society of Edinburgh, they have uh, sort of buildings in Edinburgh, and there are very nice sort of like buildings, and you can hold particular meetings there, but they have lots of discussion aspects as well that they do. And they try and get sort of like, of these people together to discuss particular topics. They also do fund uh, particular grants as well that you can do, and no doubt I'm going to be pulled into various committees to try and help them. <laughs> of course. Particular yeah. issues. That's fine. Okay? Yeah, no, thank you. Um, and a follow-up question, you mentioned that it's an award from your peers, so do you get nominated by your peers, or does only one yeah, person so send your it's, name it's in? a bit of a two-way process, so you, uh -huh. you you can have people sort of like suggest, well, we think you should apply for this, because we think the way, I mean, this is all open, you are yeah. uh, nominated by someone, and then you have like two supporters. So without giving away names, so I was nominated by somebody here within St Andrews, but then I was supported by somebody in Dundee and another person in Edinburgh. So that's quite nice as well. It's not just your university saying, "Well, you know, this is a nice thing." This is what I mean by being recognised that you've actually done something which is important for school and work. Yeah, gotcha. Uh, and can you also be nominated, like, if you work in industry as well? Because you mentioned yes. it was pretty yeah. pretty broad. Yeah. So one, one yeah. person, a, a person I know quite well. Yeah. Um, she's got it this year, and she is the head of the, what we call the Association of British Pharmaceutical Industries, the School of So you know, she she works with industry all the time. Gotcha. It's not yeah. just it's just it's not just academics. Okay, that's good to know. Yeah, that's a good distinction because there's a lot of like things going around um, and everything. Uh, do you have any advice for like people like I guess it's more in academia because this is targeted for like the whole university and everything, but like advice if they're looking to get a, like that kind of nomination or that award as well? Or is that something you have to wait like 10, 15, 20 years into your career? Well, let's know because we've, we've had people in the past um, yeah. in the university who are, let's say, a lot younger than I am, who mm -hmm. actually went for it earlier. A lot of it depends where you're at your stage in your career. Gotcha. Because you need to have sort of like done something which has made an impact. And a lot of my own stuff, I I'm slightly unusual because I've published in biology, chemistry, and physics. You know, people don't talk about this with people. So that's why it was spread. But I've also been involved in a number of initiatives which have allowed, let's say, I've managed to get funding from various charities and from Scottish Government. And then I helped distribute 
with that money, people to fund research, in my case, in the dementia space, whether or not they do fundamental research like myself, or let's say all the way to care and community. And I think that's probably what they quite liked. You know, I wasn't just doing it for me, I was doing it for others to try and, you know, elevate all of us rather than just myself. Gotcha, gotcha. So a lot more wider than, yeah, like, I think so. the work you do as head of school. Yeah, yes, yeah. Oh, very much so, yeah. I mean, the, the, the job as head of school, that's, that's a, obviously a very important job. But that's yeah, a job within St. Andrews, basically. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. So if other people, it's to actually sort of look to make sure that they've done things that have helped other people uh, in other sort of like uh, universities or other areas of industry, etc. Gotcha. Okay. Thank you for clearing that up for me. <laughs> really helps me out. And uh, I already know a little bit about your work because you talked about it in our lectures for uh, BL3303. But for the people that aren't aware, most, mostly my audience and people who don't take biology. Um, if you could just talk a little bit about your work in dementia and with neurons and uh, okay. willin and hippo signaling, just a little bit, just a All little right, bit. So, yeah, yeah, so the, the, in a nutshell, what we've been doing is that uh, we've been trying to understand essentially what's going wrong in diseases like Alzheimer's disease, dementia in general. And the way we go about that is that we ask sort of like questions like, you know, how do these why are these neurons dying under these sort of conditions? So we very much, because my background is I'm a protein biochemist. And that's, that's what I, love. I always you know, joke that I actually don't have a single qualification in neuroscience. I'm, you know, I'm actually, my, my first two degrees are actually microbiology and biochemistry. Really? But I, wow. think that, well, I think that's been an advantage, actually, because they tend to ask the questions in a very simple manner. And as we all know, the simple questions are always the hardest to answer. Yeah. But, <laughs> Yeah, so what we've done over the years is identified a number of the mechanisms which are going wrong in Alzheimer's disease. And in particular, what we've noticed is there are things going wrong within mitochondria. And then we try and work out, well, if there are things that are going wrong in mitochondria, what then happens? And one of the things we found is that the dysfunction that's happening in the mitochondria are linked to things that are going wrong in the synapse. Now, the synapse is where nerves are making contact with each other. That's essentially where your memory is now. And so we've identified proteins that are actually going wrong in both the mitochondria and the synapse. As a result of that, we have potentially found a possible drug target. And what we managed to do there was that we have been trying to make inhibitors to this drug target. And eventually, we got this screened by a big industrial collaboration where they screened our target against 350,000 compounds. Whoa. And we've now, so you, you could never do that in a, in a well, in, certainly in St. Andrews, that, that sort of On scale. On a small scale, no. Yeah, of no. course. Um, there are places in Scotland you could do that, so Dundee mm. would be a good example. Um, but that was screened, and that's led to the production of some like compounds. So we're doing quite a bit of chemistry to actually mm -hmm. try and make those compounds even better. And we, what we hope to do now is show that they have some biological efficacy, so they might work in a biological model. Underpinning all of this is that, um, and it was probably, I think, just about 20 years ago, um, there was a colleague of mine called uh, Kishan Delacchio, who's in physics, who sent out an email which said something along the lines of, I can do weird stuff with lasers. Is anybody interested to actually work with me? And to cut a long story there, uh, sure, what we did there was that we started to work with each other in the physics, and uh, St. Andrews has been brilliant at sort of laser physics to develop a series of technologies utilizing lasers and shaping light and bending light, doing 
because we all know St Andrews is small. You know, we're not big. You know, um, yeah, we're not. <laughs> and and the good thing is we will never go super big because it you know it, it ruins everything if you go too big if you don't have enough resources. So I was able to then do biology, chemistry, and physics because I was in St Andrews, mainly because we all knew each other. And as a result of that, you know, uh, the working across disciplines I've absolutely loved because each discipline looks at the problem slightly differently. You know, it's, it's funny because over the years I've noticed that, you know, physicists tend to think biology is just engineering. And then chemists are very good at developing us tools to answer biological questions as well. So mm. That's in a nutshell what we do. So, and I've over the years, I've explored different avenues of identifying new proteins, but also then, you know, looking at unusual aspects. The recent one which we've done is like identifying some of the biochemical changes that you see in uh, sort of humans. We can actually see in other species as well. So we, you know, we saw in, in dolphins, and, you know, things like that that we can see this, and that that I think as well is great fun. You know, that's, science has to be enjoyed. Students coming 
next year. One is doing an undergraduate project with us. And then we also have one of the students who's doing an integrated master. So they've been away in industry for a year, but they'll be coming into the group as well. Ah, cool. I just thought I'd ask because uh, well, it's, I, no, it's, it's true. I mean, my dissertation too. Yeah, so it, it's, it's absolutely true because one of the reasons why I managed to sort of like get involved in uh, sort of research was I remember doing a summer project uh, many, many years ago. And what happened was for me, I said so this was the middle of the uh, 1980s. So this is going to tell you how old I am. Uh, and I did this project for this guy for six weeks, which most of it, the guy, my supervisor, was on, actually on holiday. But I, in that time, I happened to be able to clone a gene, which, you know, is still, you know, even now, you know, a, a new gene. And I remember him coming back and I showed him my results and he went, well, you cloned a new gene. <laughs> and um, uh, he went, well, yeah, it's fine. I was giving him Well, that led to my first publication as an undergraduate. Wow, as an undergrad. Yeah, Gosh. and actually the really cool thing about that paper was that one of the authors has subsequently became the principal of Harriet Watt. Wow. <laughs> so, I mean, pure, you know, pure chance. I mean, as an old boss of mine said, you know, you can be very good, but sometimes you just need and then again, my father-in-law says, the harder you work, the luckier you become. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> uh, yeah, hard work can take you to up to a point, for sure. For sure. Yeah, you always, you always need a good slice of luck. Also, you know, um, because of all the different things we do, you have to learn to trust people as well. Because, you know, I, I could have done all of this in isolation. Going back to all the way, as I said in my statement, you know, I got the FRSC. You know, this is actually, you know, it's very nice. I get the uh, award, so to speak. But, you know, it's a combination of all of the people I've worked with, you know, including the undergrads have been in my lab, the PhD students, the postdocs, the technicians, but then all of my collaborators as well. That's where it's all come from. You can't ju just do it by yourself. Uh, that's a good point. <laughs> I keep forgetting that for sure. Oh, gosh. Uh, do you have any plans? Uh, with your current work to publish anything soon? Or is oh, that well, kind yes, of like Yeah, we're always trying to publish. One of yeah. the problems is that being head of school, I'm rather busy. And so <laughs> I have to rely on my, my crew to actually get those publications. But we've yeah. got some more coming up. They yeah. always are. I mean, it's, you know, I've had a number of papers. Sometimes you, you always want papers to come out quicker than, you, um, than they do. You know? I mean, the really big papers that we've had, so in the past I've managed to have papers science and nature medicine which have been big collaborations mm -hmm. they took many years uh, especially biology is different from that you know we a lot of our experiments can take a long time but i would always tell people one of the problems if you're working in on dementia it's a disease of aging so mm -hmm. by you know, de facto the experiments take a long time these are not things you can quickly do just in a test tube and extrapolate you know you have to do long-term experiments so if you're trying to test to like, you know, the loss of your memory doesn't occur overnight, does it? No, no, it takes years. Yeah. yeah. And that's one of the problems. In the past, when I first started in this field, I used to see people we used to do something like in their little test tube and then try and extrapolate to what's happening in somebody's brain for 30 years. And they wondered why it didn't work. <laughs> yeah, you when take you think about it, well, you sort of think, well, yeah, yeah, you did that. And I, I was reading something the other day, and you go, oh, after five minutes of adding this substance, we saw this result. Try 30 years. 
two things, mm. side of things. But even those are not perfect, you know. So the bottom line is, you know, mice and rats don't get yeah. Alzheimer's disease. They're not spontaneous. They can be engineered so they can show, you know, certain human characteristics. Mm. But fundamentally, they don't. But people sometimes will do sort of like experiments where they, you know, keep mice, um, you know, a couple of years or something like that. But even that two-year mouse is a very old mouse. You know, in the wild, they wouldn't live that long at all. Mm. You know, uh, you know, a mouse would probably live may maybe a year at the most before it gets munched. That's a good point. I'm just curious because most of the like experiments that we've been looking at are really short term. Like yeah. as you said, you do it in a tube and they're done. So it's interesting yeah. to hear your side of things on stuff that's a lot longer. But, it, it, but what you're doing, and it's, uh, and it's yeah. an important point. This is what I realized I was doing certainly through the 90s and everything, mm. and where I was doing a lot of work on what we call signal transduction and trying to work out how things that were added to cells, top of the cell, what to do. Mm. We were identifying what was potentially possible. So first of all, was this activated or not? Could this be activated? Subsequently, you then want to find out, well, does that occur in a physiological background, you know, in, in reality? So as yeah. I always tell my guys, you know, okay, so you've shown that there may be an interaction between two And you've done shown that in the cell line. Well, I said, that's a cell line. That's an artificial supply cell, which has essentially got cancerous like properties. But does that occur in primates, in real cells? And that's the difference. You have to slowly build it up to see, well, it actually does. I mean, I remember years ago um, doing experiments where we could see sort of certain things being activated. But then when we moved them into primary neurons, you know, to build nerves, we found out it wasn't true. So you then, it, it didn't negate what we'd done before, but it sort of indicated, um, it indicated that you had to put it on a physiologically relevant background. Mm. It really does occur. And then, of course, Alzheimer's disease, I need to know, does it occur in your brain? So a lot of the proteins we identified were sort of changing in Alzheimer's patients. Initially, we had to show it in our model systems, but then eventually we had to look into the human brain material to see if it was changing, because otherwise it wouldn't be Yeah, of course, of course. Yeah. Yeah, how do those kinds of studies work with, like, at an actual human brain compared well, to like in the an case animal of, I mean, us, we were looking at uh, obviously post-mortem material. So I was Not very lucky, and this is 20 years back, I was collaborating with people from uh, New York, and they had access to, uh, at the time, a really quite a pioneering brain bank. And this brain bank was that their material was only eight hours old. Now, yeah, just think about the logistics there. So somebody has donated their, their body to science. They have died. Eight hours later, their brain has been dissected out, etc. And it's that sort of quality of material you need. And I'm always, you know, indebted to those really brave people who decided to donate their brains to science. That's really quite something. More than that, actually. So you can get quite a few people with dementia, and I've been approached many times. I'm not a pathologist, um, who will donate their brains because they've got dementia. But what we always needed were control brains. We needed people who had not died of dementia, who were still of a great age, let's say, as other people were, so we could compare. And I was sort of marvel, I still marvel over those people who basically had a, let's inverted commas, healthy death, 
sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? Oh, so, yeah. <laughs> but, they, I mean, that's really quite something that people are prepared to do. That's crazy. Have you ever thought about it yourself? Or is that oh, yes, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh. I mean, of course. You know, that's, you know, you, you've got to practice what you preach. You know, so it's on my sort of like record side of things that, you know, my body can be used for science, of course. But I would be um, a hypocrite not to do so. Yeah, gotcha, gotcha. Ah, that's really, that's really cool. Eight hours. Like, yeah, wow. I mean, it was, wow. so it meant, you know, relatively pretty fresh. I mean, if I yeah. remember... They used to say what they used to do is somebody died, they would actually cool the brain. So they had this helmet which would cool the brain to keep it as cool as possible. Mm. And then you can dissect it later. Sure. Wow. Wow. Oh, man. Now they just need to make a movie out of that or something. <laughs> well, crazy. I mean, on the flip side of that, so I was telling you, uh, you know, the work we did on the dolphin side of things, yeah. there is a different problem because there, these are strandings. Sometimes those brains are not very fresh. Let's put it like that. So you do the because, same thing with dolphins. Well, in the sense that, um, you know, uh, we published this paper that I was with a friend of mine. He's yeah. a veterinary pathologist. So when there are strandings around Singapore, and you heard recently there was a, a, a minke whale was stranded at uh, mm. North Berwick. Somebody's mm. got to deal with that carcass. You know, this is a big carcass. So mm. initially vets go in to take samples to try and find out how the animal died. But then there are people who are trying to collect samples. And this guy was collecting the brains. But Sometimes these dolphins and whales are not found, you know, for a few days, shall we say. <laughs> and yeah. Not going to be the freshest. No. <laughs> no, not quite. Okay. Uh, I think that's all I have for you, unless there's anything else you want to add on. A little plug. Uh, no, I mean, just, um, I think, you know, this always, I, I use this line, and I, actually I've been asked to give the, um, graduation address for biology and chemistry this year, which is a great honor side of things. Mm, and yeah. you know, all of this, and that sounds a bit corny, but we are only limited by our imagination. We really are. Anything you think is possible. I mean, people, number of times I've been told in my career, oh, you can't do that. How would you do this? And I go, well, I will find steps. You know, the, there's the old adage, how do you eat an elephant? Do you know this one? One uh, spoon at a yeah. time. Yeah. Just break it down, <laughs> break it down. You know, and there will always be problems, but they are all solvable if you just break them down. And don't think about always all of the little logistics at the beginning. You know, what is your goal? What is your question? Then slowly work your way towards that. And you will be able to do that. You'll have to bring in other people. Don't you, you can't be expected to solve every problem yourself. You know, it sounds a very sage and wise word. Yeah. <laughs> no, thank you. It's helpful. <laughs> Uh, make a great graduation address. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, thanks for talking with me a little today. That's Hope right. you're not too busy. Uh, no, that's all right. I'm getting through my marking. That's fine. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, thank Look you. Take care. Yeah. Okay. So that was the interview. Hopefully, you guys were able to catch all of it. I thought it was a pretty fun time. <laughs> even if it's a bit broadcast a wee bit late. But uh, that was a really great interview. And uh, thanks again to uh, Dr. Gunmore uh, for taking the time to chat with me today. So I did say that I would follow up on some of the topics that were covered in that interview. And one specifically that caught my eye was the idea of brain banks, which 
I don't I don't remember if I've heard of them before, maybe vaguely, but they're not really talked about a whole lot. So what are brain banks? Well, as uh, Dr. Gunmore said, they're basically uh, depositories where people will donate their brains to science and then you cut them up and you look at them. And it sounds really morbid. Yes, I know. I, I don't want that to be my job. I hate the smell of formaldehyde, but uh, <laughs> they're very important. They're really, really important, especially as you guys have just learned in the context of uh, de degenerative diseases like Alzheimer's, dementia, uh, Parkinson's, et cetera, et cetera. All these, all these diseases that affect the brain. And they're really important. They're all over the world. Uh, they're all over, they're all over, really. There's a bunch in the UK. Um, I will post a link to some of the most common ones. There's a bunch of websites too, if you guys are curious about uh, brain banks and donating your brain to science. But specifically, I, um, I also looked at as well the one that he mentioned in uh, just recently in, in New York. There is one in New York I found. Um, it's managed by uh, Columbia University, which is right there in New York, and it's a fancy schmancy Ivy League. But uh, yes, uh, so there is a brain bank in New York. There's also one that I found too that was mentioned that's run by Harvard, because of course Harvard. Uh, but needless to say, there's a lot of brain banks. They're all over the place. They're really important. And um, if you guys were as shocked as I was about the timing of you can get a brain analyzed within eight hours of death, which is nuts, honestly, that's a really important thing because brains in brain banks, they have a, they one, have a limited shelf life and two, you do want to analyze them as soon as possible. And the reason they have a limited shelf life is it's just, you know, tissues degrade over time and no matter how much preservative you add to them, they'll still degrade. So keep that in mind. And the people that have these jobs, actually, there are, there's an actual job legit to go and collect uh, brains from people as for brain banks. Yeah, I'll go into it a bit later, but needless to say, sounds like if you want us to star in a horror movie, you take that kind of job. But um, why is this relevant? The timing of these brains and their overall uh, shelf life and why it matters that we need to dissect them so quickly from uh, people that donate their bodies to science. Why is this so important? Because the brains that are harvested, as, you, as we've just learned, are used for uh, the research into neurological diseases and disorders and disorders in the brain. And one brain can provide hundreds of thousands of tissue samples. And then these tissue samples are later uh, prepped and sent out to labs across, across the world. Depending also uh, where the bank is located, it might just be locally or within uh, a single country. And they're really important because they're used by a bunch of research groups. So you have to make sure your data is good. And the best way you get your good data is to get your brain dissected in a short period of time. And uh, the research that is done by using these brain banks is really, really important uh, especially in terms of the number of occurrences of these uh, mental uh, degenerative disorders. Uh, if you compare between 1990, which is over 30 years ago now, which is insane, but if you compare between 1990 to 2015, 
The number of people that have died from neurological disorders, including stroke, dementia, uh, multiple sclerosis, that's increased 37%. So a lot more people have died from these diseases over the past 30 years. And in the U.S., um, there's about 6 million people that are currently living with Alzheimer's, uh, which, is a, which is a big number um, out of the, I think, over 300 million people that live in the U.S. And uh, by 2050, it's expected that the affected population, in, in the U.S. at least, is uh, projected to rise to over 14 million people. So think about that. 14 million people projected to have Alzheimer's. I, for one, don't want it. Sounds horrible. I've, I've talked about it before in other episodes. I know you guys have heard me go on about this, but Alzheimer's, man, horrible disease. Jeez Louise. And that is why you need brain banks. They're very important there. So uh, an example of this, if you guys are curious and you don't quite relate with the Alzheimer's example, take a look at bipolar disorder, which is also a uh, br disease of the brain and it's really weird because it affects your personality. Now, I don't know anyone personally who has this. Uh, some of you may, some of you may not, but it's a, it's a big disease. It's important. I might have talked about it in a past episode. Honestly, I've had so many, I don't remember. But uh, needless to say, an example of this is um, actually the drug lithium, which is used to treat uh, bipolar. And uh, this has actually been used to help like clarify the uh, mechanism of action of lithium specifically, because thanks to these brain banks, along with advances in technology, scientists can now actually look for the specific genes and pathways that are related to this disease, allowing them to find a better treatment that's more tailored to this kind of um, disease. And having the physical brain tissue from these brain banks is vital because you're given this important raw material that you're able to use and look at under the microscope to find more info about and learn more about. So yes, the example there is with uh, the use of lithium, which was actually originally discovered uh, by trial and error. And um, I might have mentioned it before. I think lithium, they started using it in, it might have been the 40s, so quite a while ago. But Thanks to brain banks, we are able to get more information as to how it actually works. And I'm sure there's a bunch of other examples. If you guys are curious, you can check them out. But uh, if you are curious about seeing um, bipolar disorder and lithium in a uh, more like media sense, and, you, and, and you're curious and you, you, have, you have a few hours to kill after exams and you want to watch an interesting little TV show, uh, you can check out this TV show on Netflix called Spinning Out, which I have watched multiple times. Not because it's the best show in the world, but because, you know, they have, like, the drama, right? Because it's about it's about an ice skating competition, and the main character has bipolar disorder. And it goes through depicting, like, her struggle with it. And, you know, relationship stuff, so that's why I watch it. But it, it, it depicts bipolar disorder and uh, lithium use and all of that. And it brings it to a bigger um, audience. Sadly, it only went on for one season before Netflix canceled it, but it's a good show um, if you guys um, need to kill time on a flight or you're waiting to go home or you don't want to study, check that out and think about this episode while you watch.
Now, I mentioned before the importance of the retrieval and the whole process of getting the brain from the uh, donors who, the people who decide to donate their bodies to science. So how does this process work? It's, it's really crazy. Like, I was reading this article beforehand, and it was describing this whole process, and I was like, what? Literally, it's crazy. The people that work these jobs, you, it's just, oi. It's, it's nuts. Um, and as you might have already guessed from my interview that I have uh, played for you, and from a little bit of common sense, if it's there, um, the retrieval part here for these brains is really important because as soon as someone dies, their brain tissue will start to decay. And it's really important that you get it ASAP. And for brain banks, if, you, if you're unable to retrieve um, a brain within 24 hours, this actually changes the physical texture of the brain. I'm not going to go into it because I don't want to think about brains and because, um, yeah. But needless to say, um, if you wait longer than a day to gather a brain from a donor, for research purposes, this is a no-go. You basically have to get the brain in under 24 hours. As, I, as, as you heard, getting a brain in eight hours for research is really big. And I, I saw, I think, a mention of some places getting them within six hours, which is nuts. How close do these people have to live? Oi, to gather these brains. Goodness gracious. Um, needless to say, how does this process work? Um... It, it starts when the donor, the person who decides to donate their body to science, is close to dying or right after they die. Their family members or close relatives need to notify the uh, relevant people who are involved in the brain bank. And then they have to go and contact a specific pathologist, which is basically a scientist who studies disease and I think tissues. I need to double check this, but it's an important job. And it also depends on where the uh, person is, where the deceased is. If they are in a hospital, if they're in a care home, if, they are, uh, if their body's been taken to a funeral home, this depends on where you send the pathologist. So it's, it's a really important thing that you get in contact with that person ASAP. And if you guys are wondering what the typical, like, kind of, you know, kit is that the pathologist will bring to gather a brain for a brain bank it's pretty nuts <laughs> uh number one you have a fluid impenetrable jumpsuit you number two have a catheter to extract the cerebrospinal fluid from the spinal cord because the spinal cord is attached to the brain you have a legit fancy chisel that you have to use to you know, get the skull open. I don't want to go into it, but needless to say, you have to bring all this stuff, gather all this liquid, crack open the skull, take the brain out, and then um, you can put the skull back together, especially if it's a funeral home thing and you have to, like, you know, the family wants the body buried in a certain way. There's that kind of thing. They're, they're very professional about this. I'm going into it very briefly here. But needless to say... The gathering of the brain happens very quickly, and then it's put on, it's put in a very cold temperature on ice or whatever, and then you get it to the lab. And then once it's at the lab, the brain is dissected, and it is stored in a uh, preservative. This is typically formaldehyde, because of course it is. Formaldehyde, it stinks, <laughs> needless to say, uh, but it's a very important chemical in pathology. And then uh, the brain is preserved in that, and it is stored 
in the cold at minus 80 Celsius in a freezer. And if you want more information on this, uh, go to a histologist. That's the next step for the brain banks. They take a look at the tissues themselves specifically. Uh, yes. So needless to say, and if any of you happen to know a brain bank pathologist, please get in touch with me. That would be really cool, um, I think, to, to learn more about just how that process works, you know? Like, we've learned about it now from an academic side of things, but wouldn't it be cool to learn about it from a physical side of things? It'd be a little creepy. It might be a good episode for next Halloween, because <laughs> brains, woo. But, yeah, pretty interesting thing there. Um, and another thing I also want to mention as well is it's super important to get diseased brains for brain banks, but as well, as as Frank said, uh, control brains, a.k.a. healthy brains, a.k.a. people who died in a healthy way are also very important for brain banks. So when you're, if you ever are considering uh, donating your body to science, just think they don't just need diseased brains. They also need healthy ones. Now, uh, on the subject uh, very briefly about uh, donating your body to science, how common is it? Because uh, this can get really personal, and I don't want to go into it too much because I know it's a touchy subject. It's one of those touchy subjects you generally don't want to talk about, but I think it's important still to talk about. Um, how does this work? How can you be eligible if you're considering doing this? How does it work? So it's yes, it's the donor's decision. So if you're a person and you're thinking about doing this, it's your decision, of course. Uh, but it, it's typically a process that involves, like, your whole family or relatives or anyone involved. And anyone can get in, anyone can do this if you're over 18. If you're under 18, you need parental um, approval. And the, another big thing in terms of uh, donating your body to science is the legislation. I was reading about something called um, the Human Tissue Act or the HTA which is a law here in the UK about um, protecting the rights of donors. So specifically people that like donate their bodies to science. I guess this is more in relation to the medics here. You guys might know what I'm talking about. Uh, but this uh, HTA law, it was put into place in 2004. And um, before this act, the consent to leave a body for science, it could be given orally so there wasn't like a like a physical like paper thing so it, it it led to issues potentially and confusion so that's a big thing that's a big no-no and that's the importance of that uh of the human tissue act law so once that was passed um it now states that potential donors have to sign a witness consent form that states that their body will be used for science they have to state how long it can be kept for and the donors are able to say um, if their body can be kept indefinitely or if it can only be kept for a few number of years. And it's also a really important law as well in terms of training and in the medical field. Uh, so consent here, as I've covered a bit in terms of um, donating your body to science, is a really big thing. And of course, there's also the ethics and the morals and all of that that's behind this kind of decision making as well. I won't go into that too much. But it's an important thing to think about, right? Like, it's an interesting thing to think, to consider, to think about, you know? Like, you know, someday 
would you want to donate your body to science? Would I want to donate my body to science? I don't know. I don't, I really, I don't know. But if any of you know people that are considering, uh, share this with them. Maybe this is a good um, avenue for them to think more about that in their lives. I, I don't know. I don't want to get too philosophical here. Uh, that's, that's not my aim. But it's an interesting thought, you know, not just the whole research aspect and everything, but donating your body to science, kind of like donating your body to something greater than yourself, right? It's pretty cool. So yeah, hopefully you guys have enjoyed uh, this episode of The Living World. I apologize for being a bit late, but you know how technical issues are, especially because it's the first week of exams and I have an exam on Wednesday and I'm trying not to think about it. But yeah, <laughs> so um, I'm happy I was able to get on air. As you know, this is my last episode for this academic year, so I won't be back till September. Though we'll see when Star decides to broadcast again. It varies week by week. But uh, I wish you all the best in your exams. I hope you all have a fun summer. Or it may not be a fun summer. You might just be working the whole time like me. But hope you guys enjoy the summer at the very least. Have a good vacation if you're able to take one to wherever you can go. And I will see you all uh, next year come September for uh, the next set of Living World episodes. So this is me signing off for this academic year. See ya!